And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, with me, your host, Barry Kirby. Hopefully you're all embedding in now to the new sounds and the new uh, website and everything for the podcast. And thank you to everybody who's been feeding back about the new social media, the new website, etc., etc. What I hadn't reckoned on was the new insights into listenership that we have for the podcast. I've always largely assumed that Everybody would be largely UK-based or maybe to push in the US, but it turns out we have listeners over 60 countries, which quite frankly blows me away, and I think is simply amazing. Um, and so I thank you all for your support. The new website does have a voicemail facility, so I'm quite keen to test this out. So do feel free to leave us a voicemail telling us where you're from and where you're listening from, and we'll do our best to try and put a montage together if at least more than one of you actually um, do it. That would be fantastic. So a bit of encouragement there. But back to today's episode. Today's episode is really what I would consider an underpinning fundamental. In my drive to understand the wider application of human factors principles, I saw a tweet a few days ago about a book that was being launched, um, not a million miles away from where I'm at, about what I would consider to be two big hitters. The first being the design of spaces, uh, design of public spaces, and secondly, designing for an ageing population. And it's all been smashed together in one book, um, which I think is utterly fantastic. As we're living longer and getting older, then it makes perfect sense that we should be designing spaces to take into, into account the accessibility issues we're all going to have to face at some point. Therefore, I reached out to sorry, Professor Charles Musselwhite, on the, who's the author of the book, to see if he'd be willing to have a chat about the drivers behind his book. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that he was willing, and he is here. Welcome to the podcast, Charles. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the book and everything... Um, you're currently a professor of psychology holding a chair in the psychology department at Risworth University, like I said, just down the road. Could you give us a bit of an insight on um, on what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I've only just started there. So I've only been there uh, at the moment for the last couple of months. But I was brought in really to make more of the research that's already done in psychology at Aberystwyth, which is great. They've, they've got some excellent um, people there who are doing lots of really applied based research so applying it to the real world which is really my thing you know that's why I went into psychology originally it was really you know how do we apply that psychology theory to real life issues that can make a real difference to to everyday life you know in the ordinary everyday stuff so there's some great people in Aberystwyth doing stuff about rural healthcare, um, about improving people's active lifestyle so getting people to, to do more physical activity activity um some good stuff doing language acquisition you know a real mixture but all very applied and and all trying to make a difference and i thought you know i'd quite like that role to try and make more of the research they're doing there make them you know bring in a a few more interesting projects let's let you know let's let's make the most of it really so so that's been really nice to to start there start somewhere fresh and new and and yeah get the best out of people that sounds really cool because the the whole point um so having been involved in research for a number of years myself the the ability to actually apply the stuff that you you know to, to actually bring it off the page and actually show that it can make a difference to people's lives that's got to be um something that's hugely rewarding 
yeah i mean that's 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 really always been my my thing since my undergraduate days you know I've always, it, it, psychology came to life for me really when we moved away from the theoretical stuff on the piece of paper and then applied it to real life and then you realize you know some of that theory does actually work quite well but some of it needs adapting or changing and again particularly you know in my field where i'm studying now mostly older people sometimes those theories have been developed amongst younger people they've been developed um with certain cohorts you know and again we live in a world where i think we've created lots of theory around middle class white people mm. uh, in the western world and sometimes that doesn't fit you know the not even older middle class white men in <laughs> in in the western world but let alone other countries and things like that so i mean that, that you know that's a, it's a real i think research is a real privilege when you're you get to work with people and apply all of that detail and all of that really interesting theory yeah in, into a real life situation so you talked about um, you know get, getting really inspired with with your undergraduate degree. How did you what what made you wanted to study psychology in the first place? How did you what what was that sort of that, that ticking moment that decided that this was going to be the career path for you? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think um, I was you know I first got into psychology. I t- took it A level. Um, and it probably, you know, I didn't. I, I got I got a B in it at A level, so it wasn't it wasn't the subject I did best in, but I did well in. It was fine. Um, and but I thought, oh, well, there's something there I'd really love to study. It's really nosiness, I think, at the end of the day, and wanting <laughs> to understand how other people tick. Really, you know, I'm fascinated by the way we all live our lives, and you know, what what makes us motivate to, you know, behave in the ways that we do. So, I did end up taking psychology at uh, Southampton University, and again. It wasn't really until the third year of that where you got to choose very different um, subjects, um, you know, of your own choice. And I chose um, a really interesting module that was headed up by a chap called Roger Ingham. I think he's he's still there now. And what it did, it applied psychology to real life issues. So it applied psychology to sex, football and road safety. And uh, therefore, quite a lot of the lads took it. Uh, <laughs> But interestingly, the bit that I found most interesting was the road safety bit. You know, right. he, he looked at younger drivers and he, he asked the question, you know, why do young males have more uh, road traffic collisions than, than people of middle age and even younger females? You know, it's, it's they're, they're a group and still are today that, you know, are absolutely over-represented uh, in, in the collision statistics and injury statistics than they should be for, for their age group. And there was a lot of stuff out there at the time about them being inexperienced, about their brains developing in different ways but actually he just brought it down to really simply doing lots of really good interviews with younger people and asking them all about their identity um, their status their roles who they were and it was all about how driving fitted that that feeling they were a long way from death they wanted to to express themselves the car was a way of doing that i thought this is you know this is absolutely fascinating so that i went on and did a phd um looking at how um really how boy races changed over time so that was the first time i started looking at older people during my phd which was at southampton university as well um and i wanted to look at how interventions improved people's road safety so traffic calming does it work sometimes for some people um you know but often often those you don't need to slow down already will slow down even more for traffic calming whereas the the boy racers tend to see it as a challenge and go as fast as they can unless they've got a really souped up car they don't want to damage um (laughs) but then i was interested you know what happens to to boy racers as they get older because you know do boy being a boy racer is very much about showing expression and identity impression management you know this car is something about me the way i drive is something about who i am particularly important again 
why young males do it where they haven't quite yet got a job to say their identity haven't got a home of their own they might still be living at home the car is the next biggest thing to show off that that's about them but what happens as they get older you know we did find older people still use their cars to express their identity and say something about them but in a very different way so they don't use it you know driving fast or you know doing skids or it's, it's quite the opposite you know an older driver who wants to show that he's still a really good driver will drive ultra safely ultra carefully and be able to tell you all the details about their their what's going on on the road based on their history and their experience so you know i thought that was fascinating so the same mechanisms are actually at play they just play out in a different manner you know even the old boy racer who buys a porsche <laughs> with his um with his retirement money or something like that like i've come across or they've got a mercedes <laughs> that they cherish and it's 20 years old it's saying something about who they are and i just thought that was fascinating and then you know from from then on i i probably just gradually won more and more research projects in in an aging population it wasn't just road safety it ended up being about travel and transport getting out and about in general um, and how important that is to people you know how important that is that people aren't lonely aren't isolated they can connect to the things they want to do so lots of that ended up being built environment research so architecture urban design um, and yeah over the years probably a few projects about walking and uh, active travel and things like that and that's you know the, the book is a culmination of sort of bringing together lots of the research lots of the little research projects i've done on walking and and trying to put it together in one place because i think you know I, I had something to say there that might help a little bit and it's yeah. fascinating yeah. under-researched topic really yeah and we'll uh, dive into the book into a second but the you obviously just started the uh, your current role recently, but um, we've also had the the pandemic, um, which has impacted. I mean, must must be for yourself in how you teach and um, deliver your lectures, as well as uh, complete your research. How have you found working during the during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's it's for a transport based researcher, it's absolutely <laughs> fascinating to see, you know, just how people adapted really quickly to a very different way of life that that involved far less travel i mm. guess and we saw you know some people or some parts of that i think people saw as a, a real advantage you know people um i mean everybody's faced it very differently you know during a very difficult and 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 probably pretty horrible time but there have been some real positives to come out of it people have appreciated a bit more time not commuting people have appreciated uh, you know perhaps uh, a bit less pollution in their local environment a bit less noise um, perhaps reconnecting with their neighborhoods and their communities a little bit more we had some researchers working for me i was at swansea university at the start of the pandemic that's where i've moved from a moment and um, i had some researchers there who worked in the local community asking um you know local older people how they were getting on are they doing all right and, and we found really mixed reviews from you know half the older people said they'd never been so connected to their local community in their local area and people asking them how they were or even they themselves helping out other older people and we had other you know older people who were really isolated and more lonely their clubs had stopped their groups that they go to that's so important had finished they they were worried about getting public transport if there was public transport available they didn't want to get taxis they didn't want to get lifts with other people so they were very isolated and it made it you know there was there was a big divide and i, I wonder whether that's that's happened you know quite a lot amongst lots of age groups lots of people lots of different individuals from different backgrounds the pandemic has sort of shown where there's a big divide in society between the people who've done all right out of it 
and the people who, who've ended up being you know a, a lot worse and um uh, yeah, I mean, at the universities that affected the way we we taught students can't be possibly be having as good as experience as they hoped for. You know, lots of teaching we know is so much better when you're doing it in person and you can interact with people and chat to them and you get feedback immediately. But that said, I think we've adapted really well to some really good online lecturing, some really good online things. We've just got to we've had to be much more creative and think about the the pedagogy for the you know we ought to be doing that anyway but it's really you know highlighted or got us to focus on it what works really well as a, a lecture you know what works really well interactively how can you do that online you know what works really well how do you how do you mimic group work when it's at distance and, and things like that and it's made us pay a big attention to how we deliver things i think and so that that's been quite stressful to do quite quickly <laughs> But over the long term, it should end up with, I think, a better offering to students. You know, you, there's no need to have huge classes all together being talked at for an hour. You can break it up and do it better by small group teaching in person better and some, you know, coupled with some really good online materials um, as appropriate, I think. So, yeah, hopefully we'll come out of this better if we learn from it. I, I like the optimism. I think that's... Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I do think... Um, it's been quite stunning in many ways just how quickly a lot of the universities have turned around the offering. Um, I mean, I know there's lots of issues and complaints about whether students are getting the full experience that you would expect. Well, clearly you're going to get a different experience because it's a very different atmosphere. But the the, the speed in which lecturers turn around, you know, content and, and made the best use of the technology because at the start of the, um, um, at the start of this, things like, um, Zoom and Teams and that weren't really that mature. Um, and it's just, it's really shown just how immature that they were, but they've turned it around quite, that they've turned the technology around quite quickly and people like yourself have been able to jump on that and use it to the best of its um, best of its ability. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and and then you start realising actually, you know, I think that the, perhaps there was a lot of resistance to, to using that technology in, in teaching originally, but actually you realise it can't replace all different forms of teaching still in person in small groups. That's the best time I have. You know, if I've got a group of 10, 12 people in front of me, or you can split the class into smaller groups, four, eight, 10 people, uh, and you get them to focus on some some things over a period of an hour, do some interactive stuff. That works really well. But yeah, it's, it's the delivery of those pieces that we used to do to a large group of four or 500 people or something yes. like that. No need to do that anymore. You know, you can pick that up by a really good, I mean, you have to do it well, but a really good online presentation. Doesn't have to be an hour. You do 15 minutes, get them to read something, perhaps another 10 minutes, and then you, you you know you then bring people out in, in group work from that and i think there was you know we, we hadn't really thought about how to mix and match the technology with reality before and and now we can hopefully do that yeah do that a lot better moving forwards but yeah it's uh, the speed of having to adapt to that probably wasn't the greatest but but <laughs> perhaps otherwise it, it would have taken too long to to come around to that so it's really nice yeah it, it's a potential for learning to get much better i think Cool. Right. After we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back to actually talk about the book. If you're a human factors practitioner or in a related discipline and are not already a member, then do look up the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. They are the professional chartered institution for all human factors practitioners. Find them at www.ergonomics.org.uk. 
so you've launched this new this new book, Designing Public Space for an Aging Population. So you've already hinted at why you started to put it together, but what was the driving force behind you writing it and publishing it now? Yeah, I think, um, uh, like I said, it was probably a culmination of lots of little projects I'd done that had bought, you know, done either a big project that looked at pedestrians and walking in a small way, or I'd only got a few thousand pounds to do uh, a study about walking. And sometimes you don't get those things published uh, because they're too small on their own or they're for a company or they're individual. But if I put together the knowledge, then, you know, you end up with, with being able to, to do it quite well. I, I mean, I was, I've always been inspired by, by work that's happened in the past about the built environment as well. And I'm thinking, how do I apply that better to, to an aging population? You know, I've got something uh, unique there to say about that. There's some great work by, um, you know, Gail and, and Donald Appleyard and people like that being around for, for years. And it takes the population as a whole, you know, making spaces much more about people at the end of the day. But I thought, yeah, here's, here's a gap in the market, if you like, a little bit to apply that to an aging population, particularly at the moment, you know, where we've got you know, a, a huge increase across the world with, uh, you know, aging societies, more people living longer than ever before, particularly in Western society, but lots of other places as well, you know, and, and the UK is a good example of that. I think um, it's something like one in five people in the UK be aged 65 or over, you know, in, in, in the next 10 years or so. So that makes a big difference to, um, yeah, yeah. How we need to design our spaces, I suppose, to enable walking. So that, yeah, that's that's where I came from, I think, to to the book. So with the book itself, who's it actually aimed at? Who are you trying to guide and maybe influence with it? Yeah, because it's it's always about very applied psychology. I mean, academics, of course, are, are one of the audiences, and you know, the, the the book hopefully will end up in lots of libraries around the world, and and, and um, uh, be used by academics and researchers looking at that. But I I did hope that I wrote it in a way that um, so you know practitioners, policymakers at the end of the day can can get hold of it. So you know, everything from planners, town and country planners, urban designers, architects, possibly people working in in uh, you know healthy aging spaces as well so um how you know it's, it's really that 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 link between home and getting out and about into the outside world you know how do we make that easier to do so all those actors who are involved in making that you know from designing the home and the streets the planners the designers to the older people themselves and the groups that support older people in that area i mean it could be for health uh, public health um uh, you know, as well as uh, primary healthcare, secondary healthcare as well. You know, how do we create a space that's that's healthy at the end of the day that people can walk and potentially also cycle in? But walking was the main main focus here. But yeah, active travel at the end of the day. So that's almost really well suited for being in Wales as well, because obviously there is the government has a massive active travel policy, as well as the uh, the the counties also have a a really big driver behind them for their policymakers. But it sounds from what you're describing that almost anybody who's got any sort of touch in that um, urban space, the the design of it, or even just enjoying it, um, this is this is one of them few books. It's probably for everybody. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. You know, I think it's it's so important that it often gets overlooked, if you know what I mean. Mm. I think, you know, I start the book by saying every single journey begins as a pedestrian. You know, it, it does. Um, and particularly, the de- you know, I've taken the definition of pedestrian to mean, you know, every 
every type of pedestrian so it's not just walking if you if you can't walk in your wheelchair using that as well but it's that pedestrian journey you know even if you're walking to your car in the drive or in your garage you're walking to it one way or yeah. another so you know it, it often gets overlooked i think and therefore there's probably quite a lot of actors involved in making that space um uh, convivial if you like to an aging population and therefore perhaps there's a, a, an element of being able to you know pass the buck a bit it's not my responsibility to do it there or if they all pass it to the individual that quite often happens with transport you know at the end of the day it's not our responsibility it's down to the individual to do you know companies like to think they don't have to worry about uh, workers getting to work um shops don't have to worry about how people get to them you know it's it, once they're there they'll look after them but it's the journey there is the individual's responsibility and that happens with the you know the pedestrian bit and i think that's a, a cost to to how our environment looks and feels for people who want to to walk okay so in that handfuls then what are the current barriers to mobility what the, what are the big hitters we should be looking at yeah, I've broken them down into. It, it, I've, I've used a couple of models in there, some nice theoretical models, and I tried to apply them to to real to to the real life to that real life environment of walking. Um, and so, really, in, in explaining the barriers, it's probably best to to put them in those three categories of very. You know, at the bottom level, you've got the very physical characteristics of the environment, something I've kind of called infrastructure. And if you use a, a capital, a mobility's capitals approach, then, you know, that's your provision in terms of capital of the things that enable you to walk in your local area. So, you know, that's very basic stuff like pavements that aren't cluttered, uh, that help you, uh, uh, that, that don't have... Um, that are well maintained don't have leaves and ice on them you know moving into the winter particularly in wales again this time of time of year <laughs> onwards those environments can be quite unpleasant and difficult to to be part of um to walk around you know that's a absolutely crucial to get right that very fundamental bit and one of the the biggest areas as well when it comes to infrastructure is crossing the roads that's a big pinch point for older people because that's often where they're injured um you know uh, whether that's on a a crossing that's formalized or whether that's because they're crossing you know a, a street where there isn't a crossing in place to to do that i did a study a few years ago that suggested um you know 88 percent of older people didn't walk fast enough for the department for transport in the uk's liking you know that they right. set the the speeds at the crossing to 1.2 meters per second um and again that, that you know that's actually fairly quick again in our younger years we probably managed to do a crossing at that speed we're probably not always walking Walking at that speed but crossing the road where we know we're going to do that smartly we'll, we'll do it but yeah older people you know through no fault of their own through completely normal things that happen to us all as we age you know our gait changes physiology changes a little bit we end up being you know just that little bit slower um yeah and i found 88 i, I timed them crossing the crossings 88 percent couldn't cross it in time and, and for females it was even worse it was something like 94 percent. and if you've got any health conditions on top of that you know you're almost excluding everyone from crossing that now you know there have been some changes since i did that study not entirely due to me although i'd like to say it was <laughs> um, where you know they've, they've changed the crossings to have those infrared cameras now across it so they'll stay green for you to cross the road before changing back to green for the traffic until you've completed the crossing although there is still a um there is still a, a finite time you can complete. You, know, you can't, otherwise people, I suppose, naughty people might dance around on the crossing and stop the cars ever moving again. But, um, 
that that helps a bit but the trouble with those is for for some unknown or well, they do know the reason but for what people will see an unknown reason is they've they stick the green man now to the right hand side of where you press the button and there's no green man directly ahead of you as you cross the road okay. so normally you cross the road and you look up there's a green man ahead it's green older people like that because they know that they're safe to carry on crossing through it blinks green it's flashing yellow for the cars they know they're gonna have to speed up it just helps a little bit with their their anxiousness with crossing these new ones have it only on the right hand side where you press the button and it goes green and you make the crossing um some older people have said well it's like being blind you know you've got no idea what the green man's doing it's a big source of anxiety again perhaps in your younger years you're not that fussed or worried about it but for an older person it needs that little bit more confidence not having the green man there you know makes them anxious so these new crossings albeit give you a little bit extra time um you're crossing them not knowing what status the crossing is on and that causes anxiety for older people again and I think it was done so that you look to the right-hand side where the button was, so you're looking at the oncoming traffic as you begin to cross the road. That right. was the, that, That's the notion behind it, as far as I can tell. Um, but where these things come from, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, and I think they need greater attention. You know, if we can highlight in research that these things are an issue, maybe they won't be designed in, in such a way moving forwards. Same with the 1.2 metres per second crossing the road you know I, I think nobody can quite decipher where that speed came from there doesn't seem to be any research apart from perhaps a 1950s master's thesis done in the states somewhere um, and now all around the world people adopt that as the, as the crossing speed um, but if we again we can highlight these as issues hopefully they could get taken up by you know practitioners policy makers and uh, who might be able to make a, a difference or a slight tweak or a slight change to to the way that the infrastructure is is developed um and then after i mean that's that's some of the key infrastructure things there's lighting there's blistered pavements as well and you know that's interesting from a researcher point of view because whose needs get um put before someone else's you know do you put somebody who's got a gate problem that if they stood still on blistered paving at a certain angle they're going to trip or potentially fall or um at least you know stumble um or do you place somebody who's blind or partially sighted needs before that person's and you know I, I don't have the answer to that i just just think from a research point of view where i haven't got to put these things into practice that's that's fascinating to study um lighting is key as well and and changes in lighting over the last few years to more sort of led type lighting is as problematic for older people more focused but less dispersion of it um and then I look at um, the barriers in terms of legibility, because that's absolutely yep. crucial okay. to the local area. And we've looked at that in two different ways. There's formal legibility, so there's mapping of areas. And again, there's some great examples where modern pedestrian maps don't map with a, a, a heads up as being north, but they map directly what you see in front of you. So that's the space that's in front of you. But again, older people are used to using a map that has a north at the top. So again, getting them to think differently. Right. It's just about highlighting, I suppose, that this map is what's in front of you, not north facing. Um, majority of population quite like those maps. The examples in Bath, for example. Um, and they've got buildings on there as well, which are really useful because that's how people often navigate navigate by types of building or names of the streets or a particular square or plaza or place within that area. 
Um, and again, you know, traditionally maps are often just got the street name on them alone and not don't have um, buildings on. So they're, they're all important things, as well as perhaps taking the topography into account, giving people times to, it will take you five minutes to walk to this zone, 10 minutes to walk over here. This has got a hill on it, so this could take you longer or don't do it at all. Older people would like that improve with um, things like uh, benches and toilets definitely being mapped on there all the time because that helps them complete a journey especially up or down you know massive hills yeah. um, but also this legibility in terms you know think of the architecture in an area this area affords certain things because of the way it looks so you know if an area is uh, very open and wide and doesn't have benches in it that doesn't feel like a space that's for you probably for vehicles or something like that even if there aren't vehicles there or you know it's a space that's normally a market but it isn't today or something like that you know whereas if you create a space that looks like a place where you can walk with benches along the place people will do so buildings that tell you what they're doing you know lots of i think well there's a big role for architecture in there to make sure that you're creating buildings that may look like they should be and lots of older people particularly those perhaps in early stage of dementia or, or um, people with cognitive challenges talking a lot about how they navigate local areas based on the way buildings look and the way buildings uh, uh, you know uh, are telling them something about that area oh, that's definitely shop so i know i'm in the right space here and then they'll anchor themselves to a shop that they remember it might not even be that you know lots of them talk about in Swansea when I did some research there's talk about the Woolworths building hasn't been Woolworths since when 2008 or something yeah, like that but it's, it's still while, known it? yeah. yeah still known as the the Woolworths building so that I'm not saying you need to map that on a map but that that's important to take into account how people remember these spaces and not the old theatre and things that's perhaps now the bookshop or something like that they still call it the theatre so people need to know these sort of colloquial things that mean quite a lot to people that help them navigate the, the space and, and the area. Then there's the barriers as well, sort of related to that, especially that last point a little bit about the aesthetics of the area. You know, you, lots of research has been done about this for, for years about, you know, why some spaces are more attractive than others. And, um, you know, things like mystery and intrigue, creating playful spaces, spaces that look and feel like you want to go and investigate them or be part of them. And, Again, you know, I think there's some modernist or even some modern architectural changes in urban design that, you know, that probably deal very much with safety and make things very easy to be part of. But older people, well, people in general don't always want that. They want a space that's a bit more interesting and novel. So I do mention in the book a little bit about, you know, unplanned spaces are sometimes people's favourite spaces. You can over-plan and over-design, you know, a, a space and actually design out the purpose as you've done it or design out the, the feeling or the connectivity people have to that space. You know, Milton Keynes is probably a good example of over planning, over design, and um, uh, you know another modernist kind of approaches. And uh, uh, again, we just need to to take into account some of those lovely old fashioned um, spaces that have little uh, or, or more organic planning, or, or don't have any planning at all. Lots of older people talking about their their holidays they enjoy in Devon and Cornwall, places like St Ives, for example. Uh, you know, a nightmare in terms of, of driving around the place, but great for, for walking and investigating if it's not too too busy down that way. Um, but also, you know, um, making the space attractive involves, you know, just thinking carefully about 
how that space looks. Again, pedestrianisation, there's some terrible examples of making them far too open and bland, which again, is probably quite safe space, but not one that people want to be part of. They want to be able to break that space up, have, um, you know, uh, break it into different areas. So there's a seating area over there. Perhaps there's a space to walk over that side of space. You think about, the, you know, the, all those different elements of an environment. So there's a ceiling, a wall and a, and a baseline to these places. Turn them into rooms is what uh, a lot of authors talk about. And again, you know, older people quite like that as, a, as an idea. The space has got to be desirable. It's got to pull people to it. Uh, and finally, just, you know, a point on the sort of cultural or the the, the social norms surrounding a place. I think, uh, you know, we've created environments where we expect to see certain things in certain places. Um, and walking is something that's been forgotten about or ends up being lower down the pecking order a bit. It's seen as... Um, something that you kind of provide for after you've provided for the car or the vehicle. Um, it's the bit on the edge between, you know, getting out your vehicle and ending up in your uh, where you're going in the shop or places like that. So it's a space that's a little bit more um, uh, 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 liminal, if you like, or in between and doesn't get the attention it desires. And some of that sort of cultural over the time has become some older people talking to me about how they don't feel you know that they can just go for a walk in their local town or their local village it has to be for a purpose if they've got a dog that's fine taking a dog for a walk or if you if you're going to get a paper that's absolutely fine but just going for a walk somewhere that isn't you know seen as uh, an off-road walking place just don't feel like they can and i thought that's such a shame you know what at what point did we develop a society where walking is seen as so unusual or so difficult um and some of that's just the social norms and and how things have, have changed over time and over provision really for, for for cars and vehicles um at the expense of, of pedestrians at the end of the day you know cars and vehicles have brought us wonderful advantages but uh, at the expense of lots of disadvantages we don't even deal with or don't think about um, and we need to start concentrating on them, not just for sustainability purposes, but, you know, for, for an ageing society and to encourage more walking. So they're the kind of four areas I, I look at um, in in the book and try and think about how we might piece, you know, piece together those elements to create a, a better space overall. That's really, really interesting. And I, I really like this idea that um, that the spaces not only should be safe, but they should be attractive and desirable and it's almost as if we um, sort of sit there and say, well, actually, just because we make them accessible, then they shouldn't be pretty. Um, <laughs> is there any examples out there that, because um, I'm guessing with the amount of research you do, you must walk around like sort of towns and cities and and you, you, you probably never switch off and you probably point like, oh, that's good, that's bad. Oh, how dare they do that type of thing. Um, are there any good examples out there that you've seen actually, and, and said to yourself, actually, that's brilliant and and you know highlighted best practice in a way yeah yeah so it's a, it's a good question i think yeah my my family my kids particularly get annoyed with with me if we're walking through a town saying i've got to stop and take a photo or um you know oh have a look at that for goodness sake can't we just go in can't we just go in game and buy a game or something like that but <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and that, there, there are some good examples, but interestingly, they're in places where there's already, you know, quite a bit of money invested in them. I, right. It's often in a tourist place, interesting. I think of Nice in France. I've got some wonderful spaces they've created. They've got a great plaza near the front where they've got these fountains that come up from the floor and people walk through them. Um, and it isn't just youngsters. You know, I've seen older people walking through them. They keep you cool. It's a playful space. There's seats around the edge in abundance, loads of them. And you just walk through the bottom bit and then you're on that wonderful you know um mediterranean seafront but of course it's a, it's a very wealthy place it's a huge number of people coming into the area um and london again has some good examples you know particularly again if you think of of um walking spaces that end up turning into with mystery and intrigue lots of little pathways that end up then in a big plaza or the or, you know seeing a trafalgar square and the little lanes that come off that around the edge um so again i i often um, you know bath another example as i was saying earlier with really good mapping um and again some mystery and intrigue mixed in with some big pedestrian areas that people feel very safe in so they're often in quite wealthy places where there's quite a lot of investment being put into the public realm but and some of the worst examples come in in your local villages or towns where again you know thinking of the pandemic lots of people have spent much more time in and older people have wanted to get out and about and walk around those local areas and they're just they're just horrible for people to do so you know with they have pavements that um, don't continue so they end and then fast cars driving close to them it's almost like we've forgotten about walking apart from those places where it already is happening in big droves and then it becomes a circular thing so you look after the places where lots of people are walking anyway but uh, um, you know you're forgetting the places where we could encourage walk. I mean it was very disappointing at the end of the pandemic to see some of those spaces they turned over to pedestrian areas um, and some of those great outdoor cafe spaces we created in the UK, you know, that rival some of those spaces in France, the Mediterranean and, and, and places and turned back to vehicles again. And yet, you know, we, we, may, we may spend a lot more of our time working at home or a lot of us might. So you might not need the room for vehicles, but you know, that was by you know, within a year, those spaces completely turned back. And I think people have quite enjoyed them. I didn't see a huge amount of people moaning about uh, about the particular was walking and, you know, talking to older people. They've loved those extra bit of rooms. In Wales, there's a, uh, a really good example when um, uh, in, in Cardiff, wasn't there, where they changed the road outside the castle back to that they put all these lovely restaurants along the front. And now that's been turned back for... Mm for vehicles to use it and again that really helps you know helps everyone but it certainly helps those who perhaps got slightly more mobility difficulties again that's that's you know not all older people but it's more likely to be older people um at the end of the day new key another example in wales where they've got that little one-way system around the town and they totally took cars apart from delivery lorries out of there last summer and i've never seen it as so busy lots of people lots of different ages all walking through it i didn't see the shops suffering i didn't see people not being able to get there because you know people with disabled badges were still allowed to drive through and delivery lorries still drove through but it just felt a lot safer this year it's back to normal again people are squashed into those narrow tiny little pavements at the edge and I, you know I, I i do have older people telling me they don't go places because it's too busy or they don't go places because they feel you know that, that it's dangerous there's too many cars coming close i can't really cross that road or i wait till four o'clock to go there when it's quieter or i only go there once a week because it's such stress and I think we're missing, yeah, we're missing some 
some um, uh, real opportunities and the pandemic was one of them to to change some of those spaces or at least you know meet halfway with the vehicles at the end mm. of the day and bring some of the space back for people at the end of the day it does seem to be with a, a few things like that that we've um had the lesson basically put right in front of our faces uh, with the pandemic it, going back to um, like what we were talking about learning styles earlier you know we've had the lesson really in front of our faces and and seen some successes in that way i've seen it in like sort of smaller villages like where i live as well it's there's all these things that could be done and then it seems to have been like right we've come towards the other end right back to normal and we we seem to want to strive to get back to where we were not where we could be which i think is potentially Absolutely. a disappointment Absolutely. I think you're spot on. I think that's, that's, that's really, really well said. I think there was such an opportunity to learn some, some really interesting crucial things like we have done in education, you know, about teaching, I think, and, um, and th th that's going to make us make changes for the better. And we could have done that with, with transport and particularly with, with walking and, and disappointingly, that's being squashed out. You're right. It is as, trying to get back to business as, as, as it was as soon as possible, rather than thinking, you know, how, and, and you know, I, I, I think we, even if it just been some, a few small changes here and there would have made a big, big difference. I think I'd try and say that a bit in, a bit in the book, you know, we don't need to make huge changes to improve the walking environment. Quite often it's, it's just a, a lack of people who can make these changes, not walking in that area themselves. So they don't notice that there's, you know, a broken pavement or non dropped curb in an area or that bit's really dark at night or that bit just needs an extra pavement to join up to there. And then, you know, with the, the amount of cost that it would, be is far um cheaper than it would be if we built a new road for example but they still seem to be you know championed at the expense of pedestrians at, at the end of the day yes and i guess it's it's this is going to be um an ongoing battle for quite a while um yeah, so the, the book the this sounds like a, it's a book for um, quite a few people and uh, that there's going to be a lot of people who would learn a lot from it so where can people go to to go and buy the book yeah it's uh it's on it's published by emerald publishing so it's on you can go by their website um which is books.emeraldinsight.com and then search for it on there i mean i often go on there to search for aging books so if you go go on there and type aging as in in the search thing i think it comes up as as one of the top books on on there um and there's a couple, you know, a few other good books on there as well. There's an excellent one at the moment being written by Sophie Yarka, who who has looked at the social infrastructure uh, around an aging population, which actually works really nicely with my book. So she's concentrated just on one bit of, you know, communities um, becoming richer and having more um, diverse interests in them, so that people have got something to go to those places for, so community centres and things like that. So, yeah, Emerald Insights Books. Emerald Insight and have a look at the aging books on there of which my one is is one of them you can get it at other online sites <laughs> as well but that's the original publishers one on there brilliant now make sure that the um, the link to that is in the is in the show notes for anybody who needs to get them this is clearly a hugely important topic as we as humans end up living longer uh, the accessibility of our public space is only going to become more important but accessibility shouldn't mean dull or sterile they should be enjoyable by everyone but also we should let um people interpret their own use of a space and don't not be quite so dictatorial about its design charles thank you for very much for your time today how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about designing public spaces for an aging population 
Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy to be emailed. So uh, my my new email sounds a bit like something out of, um, I don't know, human factors. It's chm93 at abba.ac.uk. Yeah, abba.ac.uk. And I'm on uh, social media. So Charlie Muss is my Twitter handle. And um, I've got a website, which is dr for Dr charliemus.com so c-h-a-r-l-i-e-m-u-s-s.com and then you can find out a bit more about the research that that i do that's related to these kind of things but yeah do do get in touch that's fantastic and all m details again will be uh will be on our website um so charles thank you ever so much for your time today and look forward to reading the book and hopefully catch it up again soon great thank you thanks it's been great to to be able to chat about it thanks Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.